Uh, Turn to Matthew chapter 4. If this is your first time reading the Bible or opening it up, fantastic. It is such a privilege to have you with us today. Feel free to share with the person next to you if you have no idea what a Matthew 4 is or where to find it, or turn about two-thirds of the way in and it's there or thereabouts. Today we're looking at this passage as part of our Salt and Light series, as Ben said, looking at how God loves us and loves the world and calls us to go out into the world to proclaim his love to people who desperately need to hear it. And so we're going to read this passage together now, Matthew 4 verses 12 through to 23. Verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and healing every disease and illness among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And if you're new here, yeah, we do that most weeks. It might be a bit weird. Just go with it because we're proclaiming the Bible is the word of the Lord and we're thankful for it. Amen. Well, the vicar's on board with that. So we're going to break this passage down into three sections, which I've put on screen. The first is the kingdom promise, verses 12 through to 17. The second is the kingdom cost, verses 18 through to 22. And then the last verse, we're going to look at the kingdom life, how we live this out now in verse 23. First of all, then the kingdom promise promises the words that we use are powerful by them we are bound to one another we enter legal contracts we say yes to things and no to things by our words we are given in marriage I can remember uh, before Beth and I got married we got engaged as you you know normally do and uh, and Beth had promised to marry me when we got engaged. And so the day came and I arrived at church and I didn't really realise that I was a little bit worried that Beth wasn't going to show up. Now, I had no reason to think that she wasn't going to show show up. You know, I I trusted that she was going to fulfil this promise. Um, But clearly I was relieved when she arrived because as she walked down the aisle, I just started crying. There were tears of joy because she had fulfilled that promise to me. The problem is that I didn't stop crying (laughs) 
until about 45 minutes through the service. And so all the photos of me on our wedding day are just me with like this really, really red, ruddy face and tears all over me. Um, it's a bit of a mess. But the point is that promises are powerful. And Jesus enters an area which was a place of promise. And Matthew takes great pains to record the names of this, the name of this place, which if you're dyslexic like me, is a nightmare because you look at it and you have no idea how they're going to be pronounced. I've been practicing saying Naphtali all week. Anyway, Matthew cites it in this geographical area because this was a place with a real history. And I'll put it on screen where it is. This is the land that we're talking about. And the bit in red is the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. About 750 years before Jesus came along, this was a gorgeous land to be in. Fertile and rich, rich with worship of God and joy of the people. But then just a few years later, an army sweep in from the north, the Assyrian army, and the place is ravaged and pillaged by war. It's destroyed. Cities are torn down. And despicable practices like child sacrifice replace the right worship of God that used to go on in this place. And into that moment, God sends this bloke called Isaiah. And Isaiah speaks these words of God to this hurting, war-torn region, this broken people. And the promise is this, is that one day the darkness would turn to light, death to life, defeat to victory and shame to honour. And these people have lived with this promise for nearly 700 years, waiting for it to be fulfilled. And so it's no surprise that Jesus Christ, God himself, who made this promise, the very first thing he does when he's fresh out of the wilderness, at the start of his ministry, is go to the land he has promised to go to, to the people he has promised to go to. This was a land of promise. And Jesus goes to this region to fulfill the promise of God because he is the light, the life and the victory and the honour that was promised to them. He himself has come. And this is what we mean by the kingdom of God in this passage. The kingdom of God is the king himself coming to that region. And whilst the promise is spoken over that region, it's also spoken over us as people worshipping God, Christians here today in this century. Because whilst we worship freely now, our brothers and sisters around the world are being tortured and killed in some cases for their faith. And yet the promise stands on their life that one day, Darkness will be turned to light, death to life, and defeat to victory. And if it's true for us as one big group of people, it's true for us as individuals too. Perhaps you think there is some area of my life 
that is too broken, too damaged, too ravaged by war, destruction, sin, hurt from other people, hurt that we've caused ourselves, whatever it is, it's too damaged for God to speak into that, for God to make promises into that, for God to repair that. The witness of the Bible, 700 years of people waiting, is that nothing is too broken or too far gone for God to reconcile. No hurt too painful for God not to soothe. No brokenness too difficult for God to bring healing to. And our response is to repent, to turn away from the other things that have populated the land and to trust in Jesus who has come for us. The kingdom promise is taken out in the second part of our passage, the kingdom cost. We're looking at verses 18 through to 22 here. You see, this was good news for the region. And it was really, really good news. And so Jesus uh, multiplies it out through his disciples. He calls these four men that we read about to join him in the work. And Matthew says the same thing twice, basically, if you look at it, 18, 19, and 20. And then the following two verses after are basically just a repeat of what's gone on, but with different people, which means that there's something in those verses for us to pay attention to. There's a set form that it breaks down in. And I think it's this. Verse 18, Jesus meets these people where they're at. Verse 19, he calls them to a a personal relationship and a compelling vision. And verse 20, the disciples leave everything to follow him. And it happens again in the verses after. So let's just walk through these together. First of all, verse 18. We're told that Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee and he sees some fishermen sorting out their nets, casting their nets. It's worth noting here that Jesus didn't proverbially rock up on a Sunday. When he arrived into their lives, it wasn't when they're on their way to fulfill their religious duty. It was when they were at work. In our context, he walked into your office. He walked into your library. He walked into your classroom. He walked into the supermarket that you're working at or the bar that you were attending or the construction site that you're on or the home that you were in. He walked into our every day. And he does the same for us. But not only does he come into this moment, he meets us there, but he calls us to something more. Specifically, he calls us to a relationship or calls them to a relationship and to a compelling vision. And boy, don't we need a compelling vision today. Newcastle is one of, if not the best place I have ever lived. And I grew up in Sheffield, so the bar is... I'll let you judge that one. Um, I love Newcastle, but we live in a region of immense inequality. And I don't need to tell most of you that if you work in our city. One in four children in the Northeast live in poverty. That rises to one in three inside of Newcastle. 49% of people say that the TV 
is their main source of company. In 2017, there were 98 cases of people trafficking in the Northeast alone, 40 of which were children. In the year 2015, there was a 94% increase of university students seeking support for mental health. And between 2013 and 2017, 120 people were found dead on the streets the next morning, dying of homelessness. You see, Jesus meets us in the everyday and he calls us to effect real change in the world. This is not just us. This is not just one church. This is his people across the city, across the region, dreaming of these stats going the opposite way, of things looking better. But all of this flows from relationship with God. Note that Jesus first says, come follow me. And then he talks about the compelling vision. Don't get me wrong, there are wonderful, fantastic, non-Christian charities and people who wouldn't say they're Christian working in social work and our NHS and all sorts of things and that work is commendable and we applaud it and we thank them for it at this church and churches across the city centre. But the very best way to see our region transformed is by a relationship with Jesus. The only way to see this lasting change is through the hearts and lives of communities and families and individuals being transformed. And that transformation happens through Jesus. A relationship with Jesus changes everything. We see this time and time again as revival comes and people come to know Jesus, not just in the West, but across the world. A relationship with Jesus changes everything. He restores us and then he calls us out to serve his transformation in his world. And so the disciples, we're told, at once they left their nets and followed him. At once they left their nets and followed him. And then the same in verse 22. Because there is a cost involved. They leave everything and so too are we called to. Because we can't come before Christ with conditions. You know, I'll follow you, but... Or I'll give up this for you, but not that. Or I'll believe in this part of the Bible, but that is a bit challenging. That's not the invitation that Jesus makes. He always invites us on a journey to discover more of who he is. And there is grace for us when we find it really hard. But we don't come before him with Conditions, And if there is something that comes to mind tonight that you feel convicted that actually that, that has been something that I'm holding back, I encourage you just that might be a wonderful gift from God inviting you into more of his love and mercy and truth and power. Because authentic, 
life-changing, world-changing faith requires that we abandon ourselves for Christ. And only through doing so do we find whom he has truly called us to be. Jesus invites his disciples to join him on this journey. But let's just remember where he's journeying to. You see, the disciples give up everything for Jesus. But by leaving the throne room of heaven and on the cross, Jesus will give up everything for them. Jesus calls his disciples to leave their home, but he's already left their home for them. Jesus calls them to forgive those who have hurt them, and yet he's already forgiven them and, forgiven and paid the price for their forgiveness. Jesus calls us to lay down our lives for him. And he has already laid down his life for us. If you think that this is a bit of a one-sided thing, that you have to come before God, you've got to lay it all down, and then maybe he will love you. I'm sorry, but you could not be more wrong. You do not know how loved you are. Jesus has laid down everything for you. The invite is to come and know him and lay down everything for him and discover this life of meaning and purpose and hope, which is why he calls us first to a relationship with him, because he knows that the transformation that we seek in our lives and seek for the world flows from the restoration of our relationship with God. We're looking at invitation in this series, as you might have guessed by now. And I was reading this earliest day and I was thinking, I wonder, are there people in my life that I just assume wouldn't want to pay the cost or wouldn't be, too, wouldn't be willing to pay the cost? I wonder if you do the same with people in your lives. You're like, I can kind of imagine them being Christians, but we're all really not them. That, that's not going to happen. The simple truth is that we just don't know until we ask. The simple truth is that everyone deserves an invitation and let them make the judgment call about whether they want to follow Jesus. Finally then, this last section, the kingdom life. You see, Jesus' ministry of proclaiming the kingdom of God, we're told, spreads. Verse 23, if you read that with me, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and illness among the people. I wonder what his disciples' job was when he's like, hey, come and follow me. And, and he's like, I'm going to go and heal this person of like this life crippling illness. He's like, join in. And they're like, you what? Like, that, like, what was their job in this? This puzzled me for a while. I was thinking about it earlier this week. I was like, what on the earth do they bring to the table here? Surely not a lot. There's not a lot you can bring to the table when the other person at the table is the king who made the universe. <laughs> it's a pretty full table. But what if... They did bring something, specifically their communities. 
What if when Jesus says, hey, where should we go today? They say, oh, well, actually, I know someone who really needs healing. Or what about when he says, where's the synagogue from here? They say, this way, let me introduce you to some people. And then they go outside the synagogue and say to all their friends, hey, come and meet him. Come and meet this guy. He's incredible. And they let Jesus do all the hard work. Perhaps that is the lifestyle that they're starting to learn here. They take Jesus into their local communities and bring their local communities to Jesus. It looks like perhaps one of the first spiritual disciplines, if you like, that they learn, these ways of worshipping God, is the spiritual discipline of invitation. I wonder whether you are just like, yes, that's what I love the idea of. I love inviting people. I love telling people about Jesus. That's, that's amazing. And in the past, you've found that that's kind of quietly been gently squashed out of you. <laughs> that it's just been told, yeah, but there's a time and a place and this is not the time and the place, not this service, not this time, not this month, not this year. We're going to do something in a few months time. I want to say to you that we honour you at this church if you just love talking about Jesus and you want to invite people along. We want to learn from you. We want to bless you. We want to encourage you. You have been given a gift by God and that is fantastic. If that's you, we'd love to pray for you at the end, not for any other reason than simply to bless you and pray that you'd have some amazing opportunities and know God's love and blessing of this congregation. However, not all of us find it particularly easy, myself included. I was, um, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this the other week and I was thinking, this is actually really, really hard, this inviting people thing. And you see, Jesus isn't physically here like he is with his disciples in the passage, right? Like he's not, it's not like he's sort of sat in the corner or whatever. But in some tangible sense, Jesus is physically here. Because we are his people, we're his church, and we're filled with his Holy Spirit. St. Paul will go on to write, you are the body of Christ, where you are, where you go, you take the presence of Jesus with you. You see, everything that Jesus did when he was here on earth, he still does through his people. It's just this matter of learning it and practicing it. We don't have to be amazing at this invitation stuff straight away. I said earlier, it's a spiritual discipline, a bit like prayer or, or whatever, you know, prayer or reading the Bible. It's not like the first time that you pray or the first time you open the Bible, you're like, oh my goodness, I've got all these words flowing to me and I understand this obscure verse from Micah and it just comes straight away. It's really, really easy. We wouldn't expect that to be the case with any spiritual discipline or with anything else we're learning. I'm guessing the first time you got in a car, you weren't particularly good at driving and neither was I. It's a process of learning. So we start out with simple steps, and that's partly what this um, sermon series and the Alpha Course and the Tri-Church service next week is all about. It's simple steps of, of practicing this and learning it together. As Ben said, last, time, last week we wrote down some names on cards. What about recalling a few people and then just dropping them a text and saying, hey, 
how are you doing? I'd love to grab a coffee this week and inviting them to the tri-church service or giving them a, uh, an invitation to Alpha. What would it look like if, if entire communities rocked up to Alpha on the first night? That would be quite amazing. You know, next week we've got this tri-church service. Is there someone in your neighbourhood or in your halls that you, you sort of got to know a bit, but you don't like, it's, it's not like, you're, you know, you're bezies or whatever, but you could maybe grab a drink with them and then come to the tri-church service next week. We take these little, little steps. Christians throughout history have understood this and by understanding it have changed the world. And I want to suggest that it all starts here in this passage tonight. This is where the, partly where the church learnt our model of radical invitation, where anyone is welcome from. We turn to know the promise of Christ. We know him personally and we serve his transformation in the world by inviting our friends and neighbours and family to come and know him too. Amen.